This podcast contains content and language not suitable for some listeners. Welcome to Oddities and Curiosities, a podcast about murder, the paranormal, and other oddities short of peak your curiosity. We are Amanda and Brittany. Hey, girl. Hey. Hello. How are you? (laughs) That's a loaded question, so we're going to move past that. (laughs) It just came out naturally. (laughs) So, hi. It's episode 114. We're doing axe murders. Wahaha. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't know why, but it just felt like it deserved a wahaha. It's it's a wahaha. Okay. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's going to be a good one. It's going to be brutal and graphic and gross. But it's just in time for you to be driving to a relative's house or in the kitchen cooking up a storm. Hacking up a turkey. Or, or. (laughs) Braining a turkey. Or sitting back (laughs) while somebody else cooks and you brought the drinks or the ice cubes. And waiting for your Chinese takeout. Oh, my God. Okay. Go to the socials. You can also email us at odditiesandcuriositiespod at gmail.com. Oh, my God. She knew it. I did. My eyes got big. I was like, she knows it? She. I didn't look Holy at my phone. shit. She didn't. She was confident as hell mm-hmm. about that one. Okay. Yeah. So, go do all that. And you know what else you can find on the socials? Our hump day treat. Because uh, it's, it's hump day. <laughs> I tried really hard not to make eye contact. I, I was looking at my face. <laughs> I can't do that again. That was weird. <laughs> it was too awkward. I don't know why it was so weird, but it was. I don't know. We had a moment. <laughs> yeah. Anywho, so my hump day treat worked out this week. Nice. It was the one. Hold on. Let me get the bottle. <laughs> it, it was the one I was going to do. Two weeks ago, and I didn't let it marinate, or I didn't read the directions. So, my sissy, for my birthday, she bought me this bottle of, it's a cocktail infusion mixer from New York. New York? Yeah. It comes with all the ingredients in the bottle, and it's called Vampire Sangria. All you have to do is just add red wine. I think the mixture, like the powder mixture, is probably sugar and stuff. But it has sugar, dried orange slices, dried pineapple, dried apple, dried grape, artificial flavor, color added, and red dye 40. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to be bouncing off the fucking walls. (laughs) Probably, but it turned out way better than I anticipated. It's really good. I didn't add like straight red wine because we don't, we don't do that here. So I got barefoot red Moscato. Mm Mm-hmm. To give so it, even more give sugar it, yeah, and red even dye. more sugar and red dye. <laughs> but I'm happy with how it turned out. And yeah. we put it over ice and in our little skeleton hand wine glasses. It tastes very good and it looks like blood. It does. I feel very vampiric. Um, they have several different mixtures. They have like a martini mix, a margarita mix, sangria, like old fashioned, all kinds of stuff. So now that I've tried this... I recommend y'all go to TJ Maxx and try to find these. It's TJ Maxx. They won't be there anymore. They're gone. Uh, so true. 
Mm-hmm. And especially because I said it. Mm-hmm. They're gone. Yeah. I don't know. Give it a try. I'll post the brand and maybe y'all can find them somewhere else. Maybe Amazon has them. Mm-hmm. Amazon has everything. Everything. And because I'm broke, that's all I got. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's perfect. That's all we needed. Okay. Alcohol. Yeah. It it helps. So before we get started. Oh. Oh. I have two <laughs> anecdotes. I'm here for it. Okay. <laughs> you guys. Do you want boo spooky first or funny spooky first? Um, let's do funny. Okay. <laughs> so here's what happened. So it was her birthday. It was my birthday. And we like to decorate our friends' desks for work extravagantly yeah it's a thing it it has become a bigger confetti everywhere there's still confetti everywhere it's fine everywhere so when i walked into work on my birthday (laughs) my desk was decorated (laughs) it was covered really (laughs) in my least favorite shoe of all time worse than flip-flops Worse than slides with socks. <laughs> Fucking Crocs. You just rhymed. <laughs> <laughs> I did. You did. <laughs> Crocs. Crocs, Crocs, Crocs. Everywhere was Crocs. Oh, yeah. I there, even painted her a poster. <laughs> she painted me a poster. What did it say? If you ain't crocking, you ain't rocking. No, that's what the balloon said. The oh. the poster said the party don't start till I crock in. <laughs> oh, there we go. No, the balloons say you crock my world. Oh, okay. There were several different crocs. So items Amanda that we at. painted me this sign that was full of glitter and a purple croc. It was of a course. purple sparkly croc. I would something I would never wear. <laughs> and. Then there were balloons that say you crock my world in every color under the rainbow. Yes. Everywhere. And then there, attached to the uh, string with balloons <laughs> was also keychains with little tiny baby crocs on them. We all got one, though. <laughs> yes. Everyone at work started claiming their croc keychain. It was a thing. Like, feelings were hurt. It was a thing. It's fine. Everybody wanted a croc. Then I was forced to put a croc keychain on my keys. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I did that. What else, Britt? What else? What else? Of course, everybody thought it was hilarious because everybody that knows anything about me knows I hate a fucking croc. It's like the Devil Wears Prada meme where she, like, sees the crocs and she gives that look like, ugh. Dude, I have yeah. that sort of disdain for a pair mm-hmm. of crocs. Absolutely. I've seen it. So then, okay, fast forward like a week later, and I get a text message from my dad that says, what size shoe do you wear and what's your favorite color? And I was like, first off, how does my dad not know my favorite color? And second off, (laughs) good question. (laughs) Second off, (laughs) why is my dad buying me shoes? Because that's weird. Yeah, we were thinking, okay, maybe he's buying her like some really pretty like chucks or something. That's what I thought. Yeah. You know, I was getting a new pair of Converse or Vans or something for Christmas. Uh-huh. You know, so I didn't question it anymore. I told him, you know, black, purple, or teal went on my merry way. Uh-huh. <laughs> then 
<laughs> Yesterday, I walk into work, and right there, front and center, on my desk, was a pair of fucking Crocs. <laughs> Black Crocs mm-hmm. with a leopard print strap. Yeah. And zebra print fur-lined. Yes. And I threw up in my mouth a little bit. Good job, Dad. And I said, who did this? Like, <laughs> I just turned to the girl that sits next to, next to me and said, who did this? And she is such a good little liar. It scares me because I'm her supervisor. And like, <laughs> if she can lie to me that way, oh, it's frightening. But she's like, I have no idea. They were there when I got here. <laughs> and then I see my dad walk out of the break room, stuffing food in his mouth. And I said, you did this, didn't you? And he burst out laughing. So my dad bought me a pair of Crocs and then made me feel obligated to try them on because my daddy bought me a new pair of shoes. Right? So I tried the Crocs on. You did. You did. But y'all know what else? I'm going to cry. They were comfortable. (laughs) They were comfortable. That was how many days ago? That was yesterday. Are you sure that was yesterday? A thousand percent sure. It is burned in my memory. Okay. She's still wearing them. I'm wearing them today. I wore them today. She wore them again today. So when I put them on yesterday, I was like, okay, this will be fine. I'll wear them around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Whatever, whatever. They'll just be house shoes. So I wore them all day at work and realized my feet don't hurt. Yep. And so people at work were making comments. Oh, I thought you hated Crocs. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. Yeah, bitches. And I was like, well, (laughs) as long as I don't look down, I'll be okay. Just don't look down. (laughs) Because when I see them on my feet, it freaks me out a little bit. (laughs) What are you doing here? (laughs) But then, Amanda, I didn't even admit this part to you yet. Oh, Uh confessions. I willingly put them on this morning. Like yesterday, I felt obligated. I took off my tennis shoes, put on my Crocs. Today, I woke up and I put them on my feet uh-huh. and wore them to work. Yep. And then I had to run an errand after work. She's still wearing them. I wore them inside the store. You wore them in public. I wore them in public, which is something I swore I would you never did. do. I remember when you left Thursday, you were like, I will never wear these in public. Mm-hmm. And I did. I wore them to the toy store. So luckily, I only saw like four people, but still, I had Crocs on my feet. Moment of silence. <laughs> I've hit Croc bottom. <laughs> <laughs> it's happened. <laughs> That's where we are. <laughs> That's how my birthday was. Well, there's only one way to go, boo-boo. <laughs> it's only up from here. Okay. Okay. What's your spooky one? All right. Stephen, while you're editing this, don't laugh at me. You've already done it once. It happened. It was real. Mind your business. <laughs> we believe. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, last Saturday, my son had his little end-of-year football party thing. And so we load up the car and we're getting ready to leave and start 
backing out of the driveway and I'm like, oh fuck, I forgot the cupcakes. Not the cupcakes. Sitting there on the kitchen counter. So I told Stephen, pull back in the driveway, let me run in and get them. So I was going in the house alone. Mm-hmm. So I open the door, walk in. Our puppy, he still is in the kennel when we leave. We can't let him free roam like Alice because he's just a monster. <laughs> so Achilles was in the kennel and he did this like little low whine that he does like, mom, I'm still here. Let me out. You know, mm. like a precious little whine. And so I just kind of ignore him and go grab the cupcakes. And as I'm standing there, like reaching out for the cupcakes, I hear, oh, hey. <laughs> Like a soft, sweet, older man's voice. Mm-hmm. Oh, hey. And I was like, okay, surely that was the dog. Like, I'm just mishearing sure, another absolutely. whine from the dog. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it freaked me out a little bit. Like, I got kind of that weird chill, you know. Oh, yeah. And grabbed the cupcakes and turned to walk out of the kitchen. As I'm turning to walk out of the kitchen, I'm looking at the dog. Like, are you going to make another noise? While I'm looking at him, I hear, you're home. And it was like, nope, nope, I'm not home. Not home. No, I'm not. Not home. No, I'm not. I just walked out really, really fast. And there, my husband and son were still sitting in the car. I was in there all alone. Well, I don't know if y'all remember episodes back, but she did sense that there is an older man in her house. Mm -hmm. So... Here we are. Here we are. Now he's talking to me. Now he's talking. And sir, I don't think I'm mentally stable for that right now. Calm your ass down. Now's not the time. Not the time. But yeah, so that happened. And then like we pulled out of the driveway and we're headed to the party. And I tell Stephen what happened. (laughs) And he's trying not to laugh at me. But I see the corners of his mouth turning up. Yeah. Yeah, I know you don't believe I heard that. And he was like, I believe you think you heard that. Ah! Ah! <laughs> I heard it. So, he heard it. whatever. Fuck you too, bitch. Have a nice day. <laughs> oh, shit. We don't have time for another story. Do we have time for that story? Yeah, you tell that one. Sweet? Okay, so Tuesday was our friend Chris's birthday. And we went to this little taco place connected to a gas station, but it's actually fabulous. It's janky as hell. It's janky, but I love it. It's amazing. So we went there for her lunch for her birthday and we're all sitting there eating and this customer comes in and she is hella pissed off that they didn't put salsa on her food or that they gave her too much salsa. She didn't get enough. She wanted another cup of salsa. Okay. Well, she was hella pissed, and they were like, well, we made the food according to the order. You ordered for someone else. Like, what do you want me to do? So they remade her food, and she's sitting there like. I didn't realize they remade her food. They remade the food. And she's sitting there calling them bitches and, like, just. Yeah, I heard all that. One of them, okay? And so they set her food down on the counter. The customer says something. She knocks those cups over or whatever. We heard a commotion. We're we're around the corner, so we can't see it. So we're just listening to all this. And we're all sitting there going, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. So then we hear the lady behind the counter say, fuck you, bitch. Have a nice day. In the nicest voice ever. it was ever. really, really nice. And we were like, damn. <laughs> it was the best. Yes. It was fantastic. Good job, cashier lady at Lorena. Yeah. I don't know your name, but you... 
our our new hero. Yes, you're fabulous. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> so, I'll gladly pay for extra salsa. Absolutely. <laughs> oh my god. So um, that's our new favorite place. Go go there and eat burrito <laughs> and tacos. And our new favorite sa- yeah. saying. Yeah. Fuck you, bitch. Have a nice day. Mm-hmm. It was great. It was fantastic. Yeah. Seriously. Okay. We we both have um, some lengthy information this week. Not really lengthy, but a little bit lengthier than previous. It has been episodes. lately. This is more like an OG. Yeah, like, yeah. This and is not what, we what we've do. been doing lately. This is what we used to do. <laughs> okay. Okay. So get comfy. Yeah. My case is the Axeman of New Orleans. Yes. And so good. There's so much stuff I had to cut out. So don't at me if I miss your favorite part. But there's there was, a lot. There was no way I could do this in my allotted time. So mm-mm, mm-mm. from May 1918 through October 1919, the city of New Orleans and its surrounding villages was in a state of terror. Ooh. Let's go ahead real quick. Yeah. And look at a picture of New Orleans from that time period. Okay. Oh. This is a picture of just some random street. I don't even know. I Googled New Orleans in 1919. I'm pretty sure we've walked down this one. It's fine. And this picture came up several times, and I love it. So this is one I used. Maybe it's Bourbon Street. Sure. Okay. It can be whatever street you want it to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful either way. Mm-hmm. Someone was stalking the streets at night, murdering people in their homes. His preferred weapon? An axe. Yeah. I mean, not yeah, but... But, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you knew that was going to happen. That's the topic. Yeah. The assailant, known as the Axeman, was never identified, and the killings are still unsolved. Hate it. He primarily targeted Italian immigrants and citizens of Italian descent, attacking with an axe, which often belonged to the victims themselves and was used as a weapon of opportunity by the killer. Yeah. As the body count increased, a pattern seemed to emerge, and the killer's approach became clearer. A chisel would be used to remove a panel from a home's rear door, which was then left on the floor near the door along with the panel. The invader then entered the house and used an axe or a straight razor to attack one or more of the residents. The crimes were not committed with the intent of robbing the victims, and the culprit never took anything from their homes. Because the bulk of the Axeman's victims were Italian immigrants or Italian-Americans, many people assumed the killings were motivated by ethnicity. Despite the lack of evidence, many media outlets sensationalized this element of the crimes, even implying mafia involvement. (laughs) Well, I mean, because it was that far-fetched. It was, like, very precise every time. Who is going to break into your house (laughs) and use your axe on you? Rude. First of all, we've already established this. Bring your own weapon. Maybe it's a Louisiana thing because Clementine Barnabet did the same thing. I know. I think that's when we established that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She was always burning folks. (sighs) Fear had immobilized the city of New Orleans by the summer of 1918. The Axeman of New Orleans had been targeting Italian grocery stores, entering in the dead of night, and attacking the grocers and their families. These brutal assaults left several people injured and four people dead. Joseph Maggio was the first victim in May 1918 as he lay sleeping in his apartment above the Maggio grocery store. His head cracked with his own axe and his throat slashed with a razor. Catherine, his wife, had her throat slit as well, choking on her own blood as she bled out. Oh, my God. 
When law enforcement began to investigate, they found the bloody clothes of the murderer as he had obviously changed into a clean set of clothes before fleeing the scene. Police ruled out robbery as motivation for the attacks as money and valuables left in plain sight were not stolen by the intruder. Investigators immediately questioned several people, but all were released for lack of evidence. Go to the pictures. I wish they still had, they don't still have these clothes, I guess, or it wouldn't be. Uh, doubtful. That was 1918. Able to test. So if you look Damn. at the picture that says Maggio. Okay. There is a picture of the couple. Aww. Uh And a picture of their store. And then. Oh, it's precious. The layout. There's there. a blueprint. Oh. So at the front of the store, because it's shotgun style, as a lot of New Orleans oh, yeah. was, is, you know. You go through the grocery part, there was a bar, then yes. where they lived, there's a bedroom, a bathroom, and a kitchen. I want to drink while I'm grocery shopping, too. Who doesn't? Oh. You know, I read a thing on Facebook that there's a grocery store, so I don't know where it there's is. There's a Berkshire's. That you can drink while you shop. Yes. I think it's in Dallas. You can drop your kids off in this playroom, and you can go get wine or a cocktail, and you can grocery shop. There's also a spot for the men to go. I am here for that. Yes. Why do we live here? (laughs) We made some wrong choices. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I thought that. It's a thing. It's a thing. I thought that was cool that I found one that had like all those. Oh, I love it. I love that you found the blueprint of it. That's cool. Because that's kind of important to see like how he got in and out. Because you can see the track of like where he went. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, it's yeah. harder to be sneaky in a shotgun house because you can usually see from front to back. Yeah, you can. <laughs> my house is sort of set up that way. Yeah. My living space. hallway, mm-hmm. like you can see. Yep. But And if you stand in my living room at my front, the very front of the house, front window, you can see straight back to the back door. You can see through every room of the living space. Yep. And if you stand at my front door, you can see straight back to the back of the house through the hallway. You can see all the bedroom doors. Yep. Crazy. Ooh. Anywho. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Spooky Clear shit. view of the ghost. My house was built in 1927. Right. So this is like this time period. Oh, my God. I know. Oh, my God. <laughs> ah, this was New Orleans, though. Okay, we're yeah. good. We're good. Okay. <laughs> Nobody was brained in my house, I don't think. Uh. Ooh. Anyhow. The Italian immigrant population was particularly scared, according to the press, with panicked men staying up all night to protect their families. The murderer, according to a somewhat unhelpful description by New Orleans Superintendent of Police, Frank Mooney, (laughs) was a murderous degenerate who gloated over blood. Frank Mooney is a man of words. (laughs) I like his words, um, but... That murderous degenerate... (laughs) New word for killers. New phrase for killers. Absolutely. <laughs> the douche box is full <laughs> of murderous degenerates. Yes. Yeah. True statement. Okay. Another couple was attacked in the early morning hours of June 27th, 1918. Louis Bessemer, a grocer, and his mistress, Harriet Lowe. Wait a minute. I know. Saucy. All right. They lived in quarters at the back of the store. When no one opened the store in the morning, they were discovered lying in a pool of blood. Bessemer had been struck with an axe above his right temple, and Lowe was hacked over the left ear. 
Though badly injured, both were still alive. Yeah. (laughs) Once again, people were questioned and one man arrested, but they were later later released. Mm. Though the crime made the newspapers of bigger note to some was the scandal of the mistress. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, who cares if there's a murderer that just tried to hack them to death? Oh She's my God, got an they axe. were cheating. She's got an axe sticking out of her eye, but yeah, you know, you know that's more important. <laughs> <laughs> okay. After the attack, one side of Lowe's face was partially paralyzed, and on August fifth, she had surgery performed in an effort to correct it. I bet it was. Mm-hmm. Two days later, she died. But before she passed, she told authorities that she suspected it was Louis Bessemer who had attacked her. She thought her boyfriend did it. Well, she was asleep, I'm sure. She did, you know. But he got, he got axed too. Yeah, maybe she wasn't conscious. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know. Bessemer was then charged with murder and served nine months in prison before being acquitted on May 1st, 1919 after a 10 minute jury deliberation. Right, what did he do? Axe himself? Yeah, that's Come dumb. on. It's dumb. Anna Schneider was the next victim who was brutally attacked on August 5th, 1918. She was eight months pregnant at the time. Oh. As the 28-year-old lay in bed, she awoke to see a dark figure standing over her and was bashed in the face repeatedly. Shortly after midnight, she was discovered by her husband, who was just returning from work. Her scalp had been cut open, and her face was completely covered in blood, but she survived the attack to give birth to a healthy baby girl two days later. What? What? Women are an anomaly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One man was arrested on suspicion, but soon released for lack of evidence. How much you want to bet they actually did have the real killer at at one point? I'm sure they did at one point. That that happens sometimes. Yeah, it does. Joseph Romano and his two nieces, Pauline and Mary Bruno, were the next to be attacked. The sound of noise shocked the girls awake on August 10th, 1918. They swooped into their uncle's room and caught the axe man fleeing the scene. The grocer, though seriously injured, was able to walk to the ambulance once it arrived. But he Come died on. two days later due to severe head trauma. The girls were able to provide a brief description of the killer. A dark-skinned, heavy-set man who wore a dark suit and slouched hat. Slouched hat. Okay. Other clues of the crime were similar to the previous ones, such as the scenes were often ransacked, but nothing was ever stolen, that the killer used the owner's hatchets and blades, that panels of doors or windows were chiseled away to gain entry, and that the majority of the victims were Italian. Okay, go to the pictures. Okay. And the one that says Romano... Oh, oh, I remember this. Okay. There's a picture of the store on the bottom left. Yeah. The bed he was attacked in on the top left. Yep. And then a little blueprint of his store, too. It's at the, was at the corner of Tonti and Gravier, Gravier Street. So the left hand side was the grocery store. And on the right hand side, you had what I'm assuming was probably a living area. Probably. A bedroom and a kitchen. Damn. Oh my God. So they probably had an outhouse. That's my take. Yeah, that's my takeaway from this picture. Maybe is, that was a bathroom. We're going to hope and pray it was a bathroom. Mm, I mean, I'd rather have a bathroom than a living room. I didn't live there, so I don't care what it was. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yet another in a series of murders and assaults by the X Man created sweeping fear in the city. 
police were inundated with reports from citizens claiming to have seen an axeman lurking neighborhoods, axes and chisels found in backyards, and doors and windows that appeared to have been tampered with. People began to carry loaded shotguns, and family members took turns watching over their families at night. One report alleged that the axeman was masquerading as a woman, another that he had been seen leaping over a back fence. Mm. By this point, the Axeman had attacked four household in as many months and seemed to be on a rampage. But then, all of a sudden, the attack stopped. Yeah, see, like, what happened? There's no way to know. Okay. For more than six months, no more attacks were reported. The police, however, were unable to make any progress in identifying the killer. And then, in March 1919, the Axeman struck again, but not in the city this time. Hmm. Charles Cordemelia... Nice. Good job. Yeah. And his wife, Rosie, lived in nearby Gretna, Louisiana, with their two-year-old daughter, Mary. I know where that is! Mm-hmm. <laughs> Screams were heard emanating from the house on the night of March 10th. Neighbors came to their rescue and found Rosie holding her dead daughter in her No! Arms. No! No! Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Both Rosie and Charles had severe head injuries, but were able to ultimately recover. So, if you want to go back to the pictures real quick and look at the Cordemelia picture. Yeah. Okay. It's super duper grainy. Yeah. But you see dad and mom and baby. Oh. Yep. Yeah, I don't like it. I don't like it. And why is there a dark spot on the girl's face? <laughs> I know. Because it's know. grainy as fuck, but it know, makes but it, it look makes creepier. It look creepy. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I thought the same that thing. That's sad. why I used that one. Yeah. Because it was I creepy mean, looking. It is. It's, 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 yeah, I'm going to okay. off that. So, I'm about to tell y'all about a case within this whole thing. Okay. Serious injustices here. Mooney believed, Mooney being police chief man. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Murderous degenerate. Frank. Mm-hmm. Mooney believed this was the work of their degenerate. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the okay. Gretna authorities, police chief Peter Lezen and Sheriff Louis Marrero, settled on the Cornelia's next-door neighbors, elderly Lorlando. 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 Lorlando Giordano. That's and, I know. His 17-year-old son, Frank, as the culprits. Okay. As grocers, they were business competitors of the Cordemelias and had recently taken them to court over a business dispute. Hmm. The trouble was that no evidence implicated the Giordanos. The officials handled this inconvenience by hounding the injured Cordemelias as they lay in Charity Hospital, asking repeatedly, Who hit you? Was it the Giordanos? Frank did it, didn't he? Power of suggestion. Mm-hmm. Mm. According to the doctor who treated her, Rosie always said that she didn't know who had attacked her. When she was well enough to be released, Marrero immediately arrested Rosie as a material witness and incarcerated her in the Gretna jail. What? She was released only after she signed an affidavit implicating her neighbors. I remember this part. Mm-hmm. What? Okay. When Lorlando and Frank went on trial for their lives, the only evidence against them was Rosie's identification, an identification that even her own physician thought unreliable. Well, yeah. Yet after a trial of less than a week, they were both convicted of murder. No. 69-year-old Lorlando was sentenced to life imprisonment, and Frank was to hang. Yeah, His 17-year-old okay, okay. son. Yeah. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Nine months later, Rosie walked into the newspaper office of the Times-Picune and retracted her testimony. She said that St. Joseph had come to her in a dream and told her she had to tell the truth. Rosie signed another affidavit, this time declaring that she hadn't seen her attackers and had been pressured into identifying the Giordano's. Despite Mm -hmm. Rosie's retraction, the prosecution didn't immediately give up. Well, of course not. At one point, Rosie was threatened with perjury charges if she didn't stick to her original story. But finally, in December 1920, Lorlando and Frank walked free. Thank goodness. Yeah. Why were the Gretna authorities so quick to assume that neighbors against whom there was no evidence must have been the killers? Good question. Why were they so willing to ignore the advice of the New Orleans police chief? Mm-hmm. Because the New Orleans police stated that they believed all of the crimes to have been committed by the same man. Same. A bloodthirsty maniac filled with a passion for human slaughter. <laughs> that is a quote, friends. And, <laughs> and I am here for the drama. <laughs> I love it. Then a new twist came upon the scene when the Times-Picayune newspaper received a taunting letter on March 14th, 1919 that promised another attack. I'll read the letter for you right yeah. now. It is addressed, Hell, March 13th, <laughs> 1919. Okay. Esteemed mortal, they have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit... I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. Jesus, bruh. (laughs) If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. (laughs) I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Hosef, etc. Okay. <laughs> but tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it was better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the axe man. <laughs> this is so much wordage. <laughs> I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. You just called him stupid, bro. Right. <laughs> okay. I'm cold reading the letter, by the way. Yeah. Oh, okay. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. I wished I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time, (laughs) on next Tuesday night, March 19th, 1919, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, (laughs) if there be any, will get the axe. 
Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus. <laughs> Don't know what the fuck that is. And it is about time I leave your earthly home. I will cease my discourse. Hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fancy. There you go. Um, Words from the axe man. Okay. First off, he's not from Louisiana. We don't talk like that. First off, <laughs> tell the police not to rile me. <laughs> Sir, calm your ass down. Yeah, I'm sure if every criminal could make that, you know, request, they would. <laughs> um, don't rile the bad guys. Okay. And Tataris is you the it? deep abyss that is used as a dungeon of torment and suffering for the wicked. And it was the prison for the Titans in Greek mythology. Okay. So. Well, I learned something new. I, that That's what I found. Nice. <laughs> Way to goog. That's the first thing that pops up, okay? Way to goog, friend. Thanks. Wow. Um, uh, that was a thing. That was a thing. Per the killer's statement that no one listening to jazz on March 19th would get the axe, the music flowed from homes across much of the city, dance halls were filled to capacity, and professional and amateur bands played jazz at parties at hundreds of houses around town, and no one was killed. So I have two things for you to look at. Can you imagine how loud that was? Oh, my God. All the noise. Nobody slept that night. And I hate too many noises together. That's too much bands close together. Like, well, yeah, because then you have all of it coming from every house. Yeah. And it makes it not sound good. Every business. No, it's too much. Ah! It's too much. I have two things for you to look at. The first thing says article. Okay. So that's just the snippet of the beginning of the article where his letter was published. It says, Mysterious Person's Note Dated Hell, Signed Axeman. <laughs> so, there's that. And then, the one that says Jazz. So, this is the cover of oh, yeah. sheet music that was put together after the event. Yeah. And it's called The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz. Don't scare me, Papa. Hit and- it, Steven! <laughs> So that's the cover of that sheet music, the book of sheet music. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. For several weeks, all was quiet, but people still lived in fear. Mm -hmm. On August 10th, 1919, another grocer named Steve Boca was attacked in his bedroom as he slept. Boca awoke during the night to find a dark figure looming over his bed. Suffering from a blow from an axe, he survived, and upon regaining consciousness, he ran to the home of his neighbor, Frank Janusa, where he lost consciousness and collapsed. He was then treated for his injuries, but was unable to remember the details of the attack. Like others who had been assailed by the axe man, nothing was taken from his home, and a panel on the back door of the home had been chiseled away. Yeah, the letter was probably bullshit, and the killer was still there. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That was from, like, some... You know, interesting fellow. There always seems to be a few of those. Mm-hmm. It probably wasn't the X-Man. It surely no, wasn't the X-Man. No. On September 2nd, a local druggist named William Carson escaped the lethal X-Man when he fired several shots at an intruder who had broken into his home. The killer left a broken door and an axe behind. I really hate that they didn't do DNA back then. <laughs> they couldn't. I know. Damn it. 
Not till like 80 years later. I know. Then on the night of September 3rd, 1919, Sarah Lawman was assaulted. The young woman lived alone and neighbors became concerned when she had not been seen for several days. They discovered the 19-year-old comatose on her bed with a significant head injury and multiple missing teeth. The assailant had broken in through an open window and assaulted the victim with a blunt instrument. A bloodied axe was recovered in the building's front yard. Lawman was able to recuperate from her injuries, but she had no recollection of the incident. All these people... because they've been brained. It's crazy to me, like, all these people that survived a fucking axe to the head. Yeah. I'm sorry, but I'm pretty sure my spirit would just be like, all right, I guess it's my time. (laughs) Deuces. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, the first blow, I'd be like, okay, well. I'd be a goner. That was good. It was fun. (laughs) Well, it's been a good run. Yeah. (laughs) On the night of October 27th, 1919, Mike Pepitone. Yeah. I like it. I think I'm saying that correctly. I may not be, but that's what I'm saying. Pepitone. Pentuan. (laughs) Clint (laughs) Pentuan. I love that movie. Me too. <laughs> but um, it's not funny because Mike Pepitone was assaulted. Yeah, no, it's not yeah. Funny. A loud commotion awoke his wife who rushed at his bedroom door just as a huge axe-wielding man fled the area. Mike Pepitone was bleeding profusely after being hit in the head and died from his injury. Mm. The entirety of the room was covered with blood, which had been splashed over a portrait of the Virgin Mary. Ooh, creepy. Mrs. Pepitone, a mother of six, was unable to offer a useful description of the killer. With the murder of Pepitone, the attack stopped again, this time for good. I have a picture of the couple. Oh, okay. It is their wedding picture. Oh. How fabulous is that? Oh, I love the dress. And the headpiece. And the all of it. They are just incredibly stoic. I love old pictures. I love all the old things. I know. I do, too. That's a good photo. Yep. Precious people. Of yeah. course I was going to pick a wedding picture. Well, yeah. That's so cool. Thanks for making that hit even harder, Britt. <laughs> Sorry. Bye. <laughs> Evidence from police records and newspaper accounts show that he struck elsewhere in Louisiana, killing Joseph Sparrow and his daughter in Alexandria in December 1920. That's too close. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Giovanni Orlando and DeRitter in January 1921 and Frank Scalisi in Lake Charles in April 1921. Mm-mm. The killer's modus operandi, operandi. M.O. His M.O. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> was the same, breaking into an Italian grocery in the middle of the night and attacking the grocer and his family with their own axe. Mm. The axe man then disappeared from history. Despite many of his victims surviving the attacks, police were never able to identify who the axe man was, and the murders remain unsolved to this day. According to eyewitness accounts of survivors, the axe man was a white working class male in his 30s when the attacks began. Wait, that's totally opposite from the other description. He can be white and still have a darker complexion. True. What if he was Italian? It may have been Italian. From, but it says here, from the ease with which he broke into groceries and use of a railroad shoe pin, a common burglary tool, the police concluded that he was an experienced burglar. Oh, I guess I didn't put that part in there. Somebody said that um, he spoke English very well, so they, like, without an accent, they didn't think he was Italian. Ah, okay, okay. 
Despite similarities in the crimes, there has been speculation that there never was a serial killer and that the attacks were unrelated. Uh, I think there's too many commonalities for them to not be related. Door panels. um, Yeah. Axe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. It it tracks. Yeah. For one, the targets were Italian grocery stores. Oh, true. (sighs) The Italian mafia was present in New Orleans at the time, and these could be attacks associated with a protection racket. Mm. Secondly, the killer used weapons found in the victim's houses. It is very unusual for a serial killer to rely on tools he hoped to find after breaking in, which does make sense. That does make sense. They usually have kids. Unless he staked (laughs) out the family beforehand and knew. And knew what they had. Mm -hmm. Perhaps there never was an axe man, but over 100 years later, we will never know for sure. I hate it, Mm -hmm. but I love it. Okay, I do kind of get the convenience of not bringing your own tool. I mean, that's a lot to carry. Yeah. And back then, when you didn't have to worry about DNA, it doesn't matter if you leave yeah, it Yeah, it doesn't. It, not one bit. Nope. So, it's my turn. Okay. <laughs> I'm doing the case of Frankie Silver. I don't know this. I had never heard this one, and I found it and decided to do it. Okay. All right. The tragic events in the North Carolina mountains on the night of December 22nd, 1831, which is coming up around the corner. Mm -hmm. Not 1831, but the December 22nd. Yeah, that part. Okay. It revolves around a 19-year-old husband murdered, an 18-year-old wife charged with the crime, and an infant daughter left without parents. Oh, how sad. Speculation about what really happened and why it did has gradually given way to commemoration and healing around the little community of Kona in Mitchell County. Okay. Okay. So, we're in North Carolina, and as it runs from its intersection with US 19E, NC80 snakes its way for about five miles through Mitchell and Yancey counties to approach the small, not-on-the-map community of Kona on the Mitchell County side. As you round the last curve before entering Kona, you come upon the cemetery of the Kona Baptist Church. Walk up the gently sloping hill to the center of the graveyard and find a granite marker, Charles Silver, October 3rd, 1812 to December 22nd, 1831. But this marker is not a tombstone. Weird. Here's why. Okay. Three natural stones that could have been plucked from Silo Knob hovering <laughs> in the distance. Look, I didn't name it. They did. I don't know. <laughs> I'm guessing it's a hill. See um, that low hanging knob. <laughs> <laughs> See that low knob. There it is. There, there it, is. it is. Okay. I got it out of my system. <laughs> Okay, so there's three natural stones hovering in the distance that have that same distinction as a tombstone, okay? Okay. Here's why. Because Charlie Silver wasn't buried all at once. Oh, no. There are many words that could be used to describe the Charlie and Frankie Silver story. Bizarre, gruesome, and puzzling will do for starters. That Frankie killed Charlie one cold December night in 1831 in Kona, North Carolina is not disputed. But beyond that, it's difficult to tell where the truth ends and the myth begins. I have a photo of his memorial. Okay. There are three stones still there. And then there's a little memorial tombstone. Okay. Gotcha. Um, 
It's his parts. Okay. 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 Charlie Silver was the only child of Jacob and Elizabeth Wilson Silver. Charlie's mother died giving birth to him. His father, Jacob, would remarry, and Charlie would have many half-brothers and sisters. Charlie's half-brother, Alfred, gave the most quoted description of him. He was strong and healthy, good-looking, and agreeable. He had lots of friends. Everybody liked him. He lit up a room. (sighs) He was a favorite at all the parties where he could make merry by talking, laughing, and playing musical instruments. I think he was the best fifer I ever heard. All right. Also, if Charlie took after his father, Jacob, he was very strong, six feet tall, dark hair with black eyes, and a fair complexion. I could not find any photos of Charlie or Frankie. Okay. But I have a a photo of his father, Jacob. So you can kind of get an idea of what he may have looked like. He looks like Abraham Lincoln's cousin. Yes. Absolutely. That's old, honest Jacob. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I am the way I am. (laughs) It's fine. I like it. (laughs) Frankie Stewart had come into Burke County, North Carolina mountains at the age of six. Isaiah and Barbara Stewart settled on the side of a mountain ridge. The other side of that same ridge had been settled by Jacob Silver and family 20 years earlier. So they were neighbors. Aww. Alfred Silver and described Frankie as a mighty likely little woman. <laughs> she had fair skin, bright eyes, and was counted very pretty. <laughs> she had charms. I never saw a smarter little woman. Really? She could card and spin her three yards of cotton a day on a big wheel. <laughs> well, I'm glad she could do her chores properly for you, sir. That makes me think of <laughs> Rumble Steelskin? No. <laughs> what? On uh, the office when they get more oh, into Dwight's story and he's dating Esther and like the way Esther's dad talks. Oh, okay. Like when they're at his aunt's funeral and he's like, Has anybody mentioned her land? <laughs> oh my god. But yes. That's what it makes me think of. That's fantastic. Okay, so that's what they were wondering. Has anybody mentioned her land? Yeah. And she had nice hills. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Continue with your story. Okay. It would seem at first glance that Charlie and Frankie were meant for each other. The perfect couple when they settled down in their little cabin in 1830. But there was a dark side to the mountain lifestyle of the 1830s. It was a sexist society. No shit. It's 1830. (laughs) You're in the mountains in the South. Wait, we're in North Carolina. Well. Might as well be the South. eh. It was not unusual for a man to murder his wife and receive no punishment. 19-year-old Charlie was perhaps an unfortunate product of an unfortunate environment. A young man who may have manifested the worst of his time's mountain morals. This ingrained attitude may have had a significant role in the events of December 22nd, 1831. Okay. Wayne Silver is a Silver family historian who has returned to his beloved Mitchell County after a career in business and music in various parts of the country. There is an entire Facebook page dedicated to this family. I have seen every single one of their ancestors because I was looking for photos. Except for them. Except them. That's crazy. (sighs) 
He quickly dispels what he sees as the myth that Frankie, in a jealous rage over Charlie's infidelity, attacked him with an axe while he was sleeping. Neither does he believe that Charlie's last words, as reported in earlier publications, God bless the child, were ever uttered. Wayne Silver points out that no one knows exactly what happened that night because the only people there were Charlie, Frankie, and their 13-month-old baby, Nancy. Aww. Yeah. So he gives his opinion. It's an opinion, but here we go. It's in quotes. The story goes that Charlie had been sent to get the Christmas liquor. On the way home. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. I mean, (laughs) it's celebration time. It's the holidays. It's Friday. We're drinking. So, (laughs) whatever. On the way home, he does what any 19-year-old might do. He takes a nip. It's good. He takes another nip. That's even better. He arrives home to a complaining wife and a screaming baby. I mean, how inconvenient. Mm -hmm. Harsh in his buzz, man. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, Charlie is in a foul mood. Things turn ugly. He picks up his gun and shouts, So help me, Frankie, if you don't shut up, I'm going to shoot the both of you. He probably didn't mean it. Okay, I I inserted, Um, excuse me, sir. (laughs) That's not okay to say whether you mean it or not. You don't say that. But by this time, Frankie has picked up the axe. No, she screams. I won't let you hurt me or my baby. She swings the axe and Charlie is dead. I will never believe it was premeditated murder and few in my family have ever believed it. In fact, it was more of an accident than anything else. If you're swinging an axe at someone, it's not an accident. It's not really an accident. Wayne Silver, what's wrong with you? Uh, look. <laughs> it was probably Frankie's behavior... After the killing, as much as the killing itself that sent her to the gallows, yes, it happened. Clearly, she was frightened. Um, She was a woman in a male-dominated society, and she just killed her husband. Justifiable homicide did not enter into her thinking. There was only one thing to do. She had to make it appear as if Charlie had never come home. You know, because it wasn't like... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The movie Chicago. Oh yeah, when he had it coming, he had it coming, and it was super cool to be one of the merry murderesses. Yeah. So you know, it was that. This was before that time. I know she just needed to wait a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Just a couple more years, baby. Mm-hmm. A couple more years. You well, would, like you ninety, been... like ninety years. Well, fuck yeah. <laughs> You're right. That was way too long. Okay. Well. Shit. <laughs> Here's hoping. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I I just think that opinion of it is very chauvinistic, and I just hated well, every yeah. bit of it. Yeah. There will always be speculation as to whether Frankie had help in her decision or ensuing the activity from her mother Barbara and her brother Blackston. That sounds like a name of today. I know. <laughs> These are my twins, Blackston and Braxton. <laughs> yes. That's exactly what it made me think of. It's like, well, that's different. Wait. <laughs> no. Somebody's going to name their kid Blackston now. None yeah. of the oddballs, though. But um, it'll be with an X. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It has to be with an X. Not the... Then it wouldn't be cool. Not the CKS. mm yeah. mm <laughs> 
Wayne offers this thesis. You're 18 years old. You've just killed your husband. You're scared. Would it not be normal to run to mama? And would it not be the motherly thing to do for Barbara Stewart to say, yes, we'll help you, Frankie. But if you get in trouble, you must leave us out of it. He is just making up whatever the fuck he wants to. I don't. Sir, sir. Wayne Silver, where are you? How is that even pertinent? It's his opinion. But I kept it in there because it pissed me off. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm here for outrage. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) Glad we can share this. All right. The dismemberment and burning of Charlie Silver was begun that very night. Either way, it did happen. Mm -hmm. It was a hasty decision and one doomed to failure. They had not calculated just how difficult it would be to burn a body in a cabin fireplace. No, you can't do that. You can't do that. It has to be really hot and firm for a really long time. Take him to the pig pen. What are you doing? Why are you trying to burn him? Take him to the pigs. Take him to the pig pen. We're giving away clues on how to do this shit. Okay, anyways, an old man named Jack Collis was one of the first to get suspicious. He decided to check the cabin during a time when Frankie was out. He found bits of bone and greasy greasy ashes in the cabin fireplace, and under the floorboards was a pool of blood. As big as a hog liver. Stop it now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But Charlie's head and torso would be found outside the cabin. I have a picture of what remains of the cabin today. I thought you were going to say, I have a picture of the head and torso. No, unfortunately (laughs) not. They didn't take any photos, so I'm really upset about that. But here's the cabin. Here's a wall. Here's a wall. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Um, It's Yeah, I mean, that's... There's a few piles on the other side, but that's pretty much what... That's it. It's pretty much a wall. Yeah. That's that's really fucking cool, though. But it's pretty cool that it's still there. Mm-hmm. Frankie, Barbara, and Blackston were arrested on January 9th, 1832. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and say this is about to move real fast, and I'm pretty proud of how fast it moved. Like, they did, they took action every month. Like, something, it was like, bam, 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 bam. Because she was an unreasonable woman. I know. Like, why can't (laughs) they do this with others? They did it this time. So, anyways, all right, here we go. So, they were arrested on January 9th. On January 10th, they were jailed in Morganton, county seat of Burke County. The big city. Yes. Which, at the time, encompassed what is now Mitchell County. The mountain people of that day were fiercely loyal to their families. Figuratively speaking, rat or dad, bitch. Yep. By January 13th, Isaiah, her dad, had obtained a writ of habeas corpus saying that his wife, daughter, and son were being illegally detained. Charges against Barbara and Blackston were dropped on January 17th and formally dismissed that March. But Frankie was held and indicted for murder. There are, there are several things about Frankie's trial that raise questions. Under the law of that day, defendants were not allowed to take the stand in their own defense, but Frankie didn't plead self-defense. Because she didn't know any better? She didn't know. Her attorney and her father decided to plead her not guilty and make the state prove her guilt. I put a forehead slap emoji. Never take the stand in your own defense. Mm-hmm. You don't, just don't, don't. I mean, unless you absolutely have to. But she wasn't allowed to. I know. Um, Even if she wanted to. I know. 
Like it really freaking sucked. Just, uh, just throwing it out there. You should have the option. I know you, sh- you should, but it just made me think of that. Mm-hmm. The conduct of the all male jury is also puzzling. Shocker. On March 29th, they retired to determine Frankie's fate. The next day, they reported that they were deadlocked 9-3 to for acquittal and asked to rehear certain witnesses. But before the witnesses were recalled, they were allowed to mingle and discuss the case. No! After rehearing the witnesses, the jury judged Frankie guilty in a unanimous vote. It's apparent that a lot of testimony was changed in the interim. Mm-mm-mm. That's why you're not supposed to talk. Frankie's ex- execution was set for July of that same year. Her lawyer gave notice of appeal. The judge filed it on May 3rd. In June, the North Carolina Supreme Court rejected the appeal. Frankie's execution was set for the fall term. Like, it just kept getting pushed around. Mm-hmm. But she was given a reprieve of sorts when Judge David L. Swain was severely injured in a fall, and the fall term was canceled. It's like, oh my God. This sounds like modern day times. It's so much. <laughs> then, in a touch of irony, Judge Swain was elected governor. He was from the mountains, and now he had the power to pardon Frankie. Meanwhile, sentiment for a pardon was growing. Even seven members of Frankie's jury signed a petition asking Governor Swain to issue a pardon The governor was apparently unmoved. Mm -hmm. Her dad, Isaiah, got tired of waiting. And on May 18th, 1833, he, his brother, and one other man broke Frankie out of jail. That's really going to help things. Yeah. It's thought they may have had inside help. This is certainly possible since one letter to Governor Swain stated that fully 90% of the community now wanted Frankie spared. Eight days later, she was recaptured in Rutherford County while heading for the Tennessee border. The outcry to give Frankie her freedom grew even louder, particularly among the upper crust ladies of Morganton, who sent their own appeal to the governor. And they couldn't move him? Oh, no. Hmm. It's theorized that Swain had two reasons for not granting a pardon. As a judge, he'd had a reputation for leniency. As governor, he wanted to create a new image. Wayne Silver believes that Swain, being from the Asheville area, knew the Silver clan, while not possessing great wealth, owned a lot of land and were not without influence. If Swain thought the Silver family wanted Frankie to hang, she would. Oh, good. In a letter dated July 9, 1833, Swain appears to try to remove himself from responsibility for Frankie's execution by telling W.C. Bevins that his letter appealing for a pardon did not arrive in time. Sir. The Bevins letter is clearly dated, and Swain had it in plenty of time, says this article. Some reports say that Frankie Silver was hung from the neck until dead from the limb of a huge oak tree that stood on a hill above the courthouse in Morganton. Perry Dean? Dean? I'd say Dean. Dean Young believes there was a scaffold. In Sharon McCrum's novel, The Ballad of Frankie Silver, it stated that a large crowd was present to hear her father say, Die with it in ye, Frankie? Die with it in ye? Yeah. I don't know. When Frankie was asked if she had any last words. Frankie was not the first woman hung in North Carolina or Burke County, um, nor did she recite a poem or sing a song that was reported to 
that she had written in her jail cell. I can talk. It's fine. Mm. Previously reported, she was supposedly like the first woman hung, but they found other records that she wasn't. So this is just kind of breaking the... She did die, apparently, bravely, on July 12th. Her dad had a coffin ready to take her back to her own people, but they never made it. Frankie's 90-pound body began to decompose rapidly in the hot July sun. Gross. Isaiah was forced to bury his daughter about eight miles outside of town along the old Buckhorn Tavern Road. Which, okay, I like the name. Yep. Her stone, which was erected in 1951, is hard to locate today. I couldn't even find a photo of it. Um, But if you're one of those people who's had Charlie and Frankie's story creep into your being and gnaw at your gut, you want to make the effort. And what of the child that Charlie and Frankie left behind? Nobody ever really talks about them, so I got a little bit of info on her. Okay. According to information from Perry Dean Young, Nancy Silver's early life is as uncertainly documented as the death of her parents. There are legends that she was raised by the Stuarts or by the Silvers. There are also tales that she was spirited away to Stuart relatives in Macon County. Um, It's also asserted that Nancy married David Parker of McDowell County in 1850, but David Parker is still listed in the house of his parents in that year's census. So, maybe they lived with mom and dad. Yeah. Yeah, never know. It's assumed that the first 10 years of Nancy's marriage were happy ones. She was then left devastated by her husband's death during the Civil War. Her children were apparently raised by others from young ages and were not reunited until Nancy moved to Macon County in the 1870s and married William C. Robinson. She is buried in the Mount Grove Cemetery in Macon County as a result, a long way from her parents. But one cannot help but think that if not for the tragic event of ni- of December 22nd, 1831, they might all be buried in the same cemetery on the tidy little hill in Kona. I have a picture of her tombstone. Okay. It says Nancy. Nancy. Oh, I love those. <laughs> that makes me sound weird. But I love the super old ones like that where the letters same. are so big. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It makes the, gra- the greatest little rubbings. <laughs> Ooh, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Hell yes. Me and my mom like to do that. See, she's why I'm weird. My mom did it. But your mom's the shit. My mom is the shit. That's not weird. We're just a bunch of weirdos. It's It's fine. We are the weirdos, mister. Quirky uniqueness, and I love it. Thanks. You're welcome. (laughs) We did it. Yay, we did it. (laughs) (sighs) Okay. We have one more thing to do. And it just hit me. This is our last cryptid. Last one. This is your last chance. This this is the last clue for this season. Because it's time for... Guess That Cryptid! It pisses me off every time. Because I don't know where to go. I got that part. I listened to it when I was listening to it this week. I was like, hold on, I'm going to get the bump. (laughs) I know nothing. (laughs) All right. All right, Miss Brittany. So this is cryptid number five. Clue number five. Did you say five? Five. (laughs) Totes. 
comes from Australian folklore. I'll say it for you one more again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Comes from Australian folklore. I just handed it to you on a platter, friends. Pretty much. Now go put all those five clues together, and y'all should be able to get this one. You can find all the clues on the socials if you can't remember them. It's a really good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Find it. Do that. Do all that stuff. Make your guesses. Mm-hmm. Rate and review. Mm-hmm. And happy Thanksgiving. Happy humping. Happy humping. Woohoo! Yeah. Woo! <laughs> Pre-Thanksgiving hump. <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. On go. that note, it's time to leave. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for hanging out with us. Don't forget to visit us on Facebook and Instagram for episode picks and announcements. Please rate and review on Apple, Spotify, and Facebook. We want to give a huge shout-out to Stephen Goetzke for editing, Craig Weaver for music, and our very own Amanda Hagens for art. We'll talk at you next week.